www.ordinaryfolk.org. Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand, coming right up. Corn in the fields, listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. Welcome to WPCAN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. My name is Richard Hill, and I'm here with uh, two co-hosts today. Chris Ferrio is here. Thank you for being here, Chris. Sure, Richard. Great to have you. And also we have Laura Modlin, who is joining us today from her first... uh, I guess you could call it a debut with us from last show, <laughs> where she did an excellent report on uh, environmental issues in our, e- in our region. And so Laura's back today to give us a, sh- a report a little bit later. And of course, we have our itinerant farmer giving us the small farms report, Steve Munno, who is the farm manager at Masaro Farm, which is a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Concern, in uh, Woodbridge, Connecticut. Steve, thank you for for being with us. Are you with? Oh, sorry about that, Steve. <laughs> One more time. Are, yes. are you, we got Good you right. Yes, okay. I'm here. Uh, excellent. All right. <laughs> well, we're going to have a fantastic show today. You know, for a change. <laughs> Steve, did you hear that? Yeah, for a change. My yeah, goodness. I know. What's he? What's what's he talking about? I don't get it. Don't we always do great shows? We try our best. <laughs> yeah, we do. And, and we're flogging this joke. I th- I think the joke might have yeah, died a couple think, of shows um, ago. Yeah, I think maybe we need to um, uh, work on our game. Yeah, I think so. We, Up we, our game a little bit. We'll have to do some rehearsing on this one. So anyway, we have a good show, though. We, Steve is going to give his report, his uh, small farms report about uh, what's going on there at Masaro in the dead of winter. And then we will have some comments and uh, commentary and a little bit of news from Laura. Uh, we'll all be firing questions at Steve. And I think we do have time for some listener phone calls uh, during and immediately after Steve's report. And But we do have also a special event coming today. That, that would be at 1230. We're going to have Lindley Dixon, who is the co-director of the Real Organic Project. And she'll be with us today to talk about this very interesting conference 
that uh, actually Laura Modlin attended by uh, in, in a virtual fashion. Uh, I guess it was yesterday, Laura. Is that, is that right? Two days ago. Yeah. Closer to the mic. Yeah, it was two days ago. Okay, and uh, but that's also that's basically a preview for events that are going to be happening in uh, on in February and March. Those will be symposiums put on by the Real Organic Project. So we're going to talk to Lindley about what just happened and also find out what will happen on those larger events in February and March. And of course, the uh, NOFA Winter Conference is approaching, and um, we spoke, uh, Steve got a bit, gave a report on that last show, but uh, you know we need to keep remembering, <laughs> get people ready for that. So if any, there's any new news about that, we should, we should definitely share it. All right, so let's move right into Steve's report. Uh, Steve, um, what's going on out there? Are you are you uh, hunkering down for the winter, or, you, or is there any any kind of work and uh, or seed ordering, or what? What are you up to there in, at Masaro Farm? Well, you know, there's always things happening, and you know, you had mentioned us being here in the dead of winter. It just doesn't feel like the dead of winter. Yeah. <laughs> We're in mid-January, but it's raining outside right now. And, um, you know, we, at least here in the sort of southern and eastern part of Connecticut, we haven't had, you know, frozen periods. We haven't had a week where, you know, temperatures have stayed below freezing and where we've been, you know, needed to shovel out our, our, our homes and our, and our farm buildings and such. Um, so it's been a bit of an odd winter so far without those, those real deep freezes or, or, you know, even just real cold periods. It's, it's been mild. So, you know, at Masaro, our, our winter harvest is pretty limited. We, we do grow in, in a variety of high tunnels. And, you know, we have lettuce and kale and carrots and radishes, arugula, um, you know, all growing in those tunnels. And I usually think about this time of year as being kind of the, the slowest bit of our harvest because in part in the fall we're pushing our harvest as much as we can for that sort of end of season Thanksgiving and right before Christmas and the holidays trying to get as much to people as we can and then we hibernate a little bit take a few weeks off and then slowly start harvesting again a little bit here in January a little bit in February maybe a little more in March um, but it's been so warm that we, you know we, we've been able to go into the tunnels each week and, and harvest some things make it available through um, you know sort of a pop-up store here at the farm uh, you know every other week on a Friday we've had that open and we've gone to um, the farmers market on Saturdays in New Haven through City Seed at the Conte West School uh, each of the last few Saturdays you know we we typically try to go every other week but it's just been so warm and when and we've got this beautiful red lettuce right now we've got a red leaf lettuce and a red romaine lettuce and just conditions for them are, are perfect for us to harvest. Um, so, so we've been taking advantage of that of this weather now. You, you never know what um, February is going to bring in, in New England, uh, or you know, or March or April for that matter. So, right. uh, we're 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 harvesting some things now that we normally might not do until a little bit later. So, it has me rethinking some of my planting plan for the winter, and maybe we get some things started sooner than later to replace what we're harvesting right now. Um, so yeah, you know we've we've always got to be flexible, um, you know, with our farm plans, and that's one of the adjustments I'm making now. Thinking about maybe getting some things in the ground uh, and started in our greenhouse a little sooner to replace what we've harvested. But 
you know, seed planning, crop planning, conferences, you know, that's kind of the focus of this time is, is, is thinking about what happened last year and what we'd like to happen this year and, um, you know, planning that bit by bit with, uh, you know, from looking through those seed catalogs to, you know, checking in with my, my farm staff and, and making sure they have what they need for the season and, you know, thinking about what our crew might look like if we need to add any people to the farm. And, and because we offer a lot of programs here at Masaro, it's also event planning and program planning. So uh, we've, we've got a lot, of, uh, a lot on our plate for this sort of uh, not-too-dead-of-winter moment uh, in mid-January. It's a very unusual farm in that sense because you do uh, you do community programming in that way. You try to bring the community to the farm for those special events, and so that adds a whole new dimension to the type of planning and programming that you you folks do. do is any of that t- uh, taken shape yet, or are you still just uh, brainstorming? You, you know, there's always things that are that are set that are sort of. Um, you know the the programs anchor around a few key events so we do you know in in mid-may our, our celebrate spring um, which started off just as sort of some simple activities and a plant sale but has really grown over the years and has involved a lot of artists and vendors um, coming to the farm we've had um, uh, artists building um, little fairy houses and setting them across the farm and in our woods and on our trails and it's been a, it's a really fun way to walk around the farm and see you know local artists the work that they've done and and how they fit it into uh, the farm ecosystem and in the woods and such so so that's planned for mid-May and we're working on those details now um, we do you know, we've had a fundraiser in in March which uh, with a local at a local comedy club so we're working on that. Um, we have a few workshops that, you know, while we mostly want to be on the farm, we'll go to a few local libraries and talk about seed starting and planning your garden for the season. So there's some of those outreach, you know, off the farm workshops that will help run in the community. Um, and then, you know, we're thinking about our summer camp plans for kids and, um, we currently offer a, a program for, you know, vacation days when school's out for kids to come to the farm and do things in, in the woods. Um, we've got some great outdoor educators who work here and uh, put on some programs throughout the year and uh, and over the weekends, you know, winter explorer programs. So uh, we're, we're still working on the full year calendar, but there are some things in place, and we're sort of working on um, with those as the, the anchors for the season and, and seeing what we can add in. Wonderful. Sounds like... <laughs> Some great stuff coming up. Um, anybody on the panel have a question? Sure. Um, what I'm wondering is with the variable weather we've been having, um, how do you decide when you start pickups for the CSA? So, you know, I've just learned over the years that, that mid-June is a great time for us to start. Um, so we're entering our 14th season, and um, it's it's been variable over the years, and particularly in the first few years, I said, well, you know, if things are ready earlier, we'll get it going earlier. And so, you know, sometimes we have a, a snow-free march, and we're out there, and we can prep the soil, and we can get greens in sooner. Um, and I, I made, you know, a choice one year to start in late May, so, and, and I should say, we typically do a 20-week CSA. So, you know, the start date in mid-June would take us to the end of October. But I thought, well, if we could get started a few weeks earlier, you know, um, you know, people are anxious for food and we can just get it going. But what I realized in doing that was, you know, some of the crops that we expect, um, you know, mid-season 
still didn't come until mid-season, even if the even if some of our other stuff we were able to harvest earlier. So, for example, our you know tomatoes and peppers and eggplant, you know, even if we had a, a warm spring and an early spring, they, they didn't necessarily mature you know two weeks ahead of schedule, and so the CSA ended up having you know maybe more greens and herbs uh, than I expected. Um, you know, for for two extra weeks, by week six or seven, we were still deep in a lot of greens and herbs instead of getting into some of the fruiting crops um, by starting in, in May instead of June. And then we also end up losing a couple days of um, of field work because we're we're harvesting and distributing for the CSA. So I really found that our team we need that time to trellis our tomatoes, get the stakes in the ground, put those strings in there. Uh, in June, we're still planting. And June is always a crazy time because you're still, you know, you're harvesting things, but you're also still seeding in the greenhouse. You're still prepping and planting outside. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done in, in crop prep and crop care. Uh, and so adding in all the CSA work that we do, um, I, I just realized that starting earlier was not better for us. So we target mid-June, and and prior to that, we offer you know what we can harvest. We'll do through the farmers market and our store, rather than you know committing to you know for us we have 300 CSA subscribers, uh, you know having you know eight ten items for that many people earlier is just a little more pressure than we need given the variables in New England. Um, so for the most part, we've settled on just starting in mid June and and ending in in late October, and then offering you know being at the markets before or running a farm store before then and then we've always done a, a small add-on uh, for november and december because uh, you know the the harvest here can last especially with our high tunnels but we don't do it for as many people so we've had you know 100 people in our fall csa for just four to six weeks instead of 300 and so that that's also made it a little easier for us to run that um which maybe someday we'll do in the spring as well so people could be a part of a spring csa but we've we've settled nicely into a mid-june start date uh, going through late October for our CSA. I know Chris has a question, but before I, I turn it over to him, I just want to mention that uh, folks who would like to uh, get in on the conversation, we do have a few minutes for that. So if you'd like to give us a call at 203-336-9756, uh, we'd be happy to chat with you. 203-336-9756. Meanwhile, Chris, what's on your mind? Hey, Steve, how's it going? Doing well. Um, so I have two questions. One is, what's the average temperature in your high tunnels this time of year? Oh, that's a good question. I think I would need some real data on that um, to say what the average temp is. But, I, mean, you know, today, I mean, just like a, a guess. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, the, the way the high tunnels work, since there's no, there's no additional heat, the only heat it's getting is through is from the sun, uh, you know, radiating through that plastic and then the plastic trapping it in. Um, so on a day like today where it's cloudy and you know right now it's 38 degrees outside, you know it's it, it might be a few degrees warmer in there. It might be you know 42, 43, but it's it's not it's not warm in there. But on a sunny day, you know, if and 38 degrees, it could be 60 degrees in there. You know, you let it heat up for a few hours. By midday, you know, it's going to be 60, 65. So it, there's really huge swings in the in the tunnels still. Um, you know, if we have a week of frozen weather, it's going to be frozen in there too. And that's why when I was talking earlier about, you know, not harvesting as much in January, a part of that is because we really can't harvest in there if it's if it's 
snowy and cloudy and, and frozen outside, the crops in there are going to be uh, really cold too. So especially those greens, uh, we need for them to, to sort of wake up and liven up um, in order to harvest them. So, you know, our team typically works in the afternoon in the winter so that the, if we're harvesting greens, it can, you know, they've, they've sort of had a chance to unfurl. Uh, you know, when it's cold, we as people tend, tend to sort of tighten up and huddle up. Well, the plants do that, too. They kind of, even if they're still alive, they kind of curl up a little bit. And we don't want to harvest them when they're like that. We want um, we want the sort of fluids to be moving through them uh, and, and really capture that vitality and, and, and harvest them when they're you know, sort of fully awake um, and not when they're all tightened up from the cold. So, so the temperature swings quite a bit. You know, if, if it's a frozen week, it could be freezing in there. And that's why we have the extra sort of frost blankets and little hoops over things so that when the temperature does get low, we can give it, uh, you know, that extra layer of protection to keep them from, you know, being killed off by the frost. So my other question is, um, you mentioned a farmer's market in New Haven. um, Is that a year-round thing? Uh, yes. So the market, uh, so City Seed is the organization that runs the farmer's market, and um, it's in the Worcester Square area. And, um, you know, it had always been in Worcester Square Park until the pandemic, and it moved just down the road. It's still in the Worcester Square area at the Conte West School. Um, so it's sort of in the, the parking lot of the school. And then in the winter on Saturdays, we, we do use sort of there's a, a, an indoor space and so the market, you know, there's a few vendors who stay outside and a few and, and the rest of the vendors are inside. Um, so the, the sort of winter market there is, you know, goes from um, early January, you know, the first weekend in January through the end of March. And then the market will move back outside in, in April, um, you know, in the same location. Uh, maybe one day they'll be back at, at the Worcester Square Park proper, but it's just down the road from there. So City Seed Saturdays, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. is the winter market. And then the rest of the year, it starts at 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturdays uh, in Worcester Square. So cityseed.org for anyone who wants to check that out. They've got, you know, some other market locations in New Haven. But for for winter, it's just that one market. And I'm just and I'm trying to be brief. Um, You also mentioned you have a store. Is that something that you have on your property that goes year round or is it more seasonal? It's seasonal. So we just, you know, for our CSA distribution, it happens uh, in our barn. That's that's where people pick up our produce. And the store is sort of the same. And and there's also a a pandemic shift. But we, you know, started selling the produce online with with pickup at the farm. And, you know, over the the course of the pandemic, we made that pickup right outside the barn. So we'd package it for people. So, you know, bag it, bag up their order and people could sort of do a drive through pickup right outside the farm. But, you know, as things have eased, we've had people back in the farm picking up their CSA and and produce. But we don't have regular store hours. Uh, in the winter, we've just set it up, uh, you know, planning for alternating Fridays throughout the winter. So we had uh, we won't be tomorrow. It'll be the, the next week. So we, we still offer pre-orders, um, you know, through the store or through online store, which just helps us with our harvest amount, um, getting a sense of how many people might be interested. Uh, but we do have walk-in hours from, from noon to 5, uh, alternating Fridays. So uh, not tomorrow, but uh, next week, I think, would be the 27th, would be the next one, uh, January 27th. So, um, but our hope is to actually do some um, improvements to the barn uh, over the next year, year and a half, and, um, you know, set ourselves up for a a more welcoming store situation that will be open more often. 
that's sort of in our, our short and long-term plans is to, to, to have a store open to the public with more hours, uh, maybe not all, maybe not every day, but, um, you know, balance it with our CSA pickups and other happenings on the farm so that, you know, if you're just a passerby, you could pull in and, and, and buy something. But if you're here for programs or events or activities, you can also, you know, walk into the barn and be able to purchase something. Steve, what is the, uh, the, the web address for people who would like to order online? So there'll be there's a link from masarofarm.org. That's M-A-S-S-A-R-O-F-A-R-M.org. Um, that's there, and then we have a. It'll take you to a Square site. You know, we use the 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 Square uh, platform. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's Square Store Masaro.com. I have to I'd have to pull that back up, but, but we usually have a link from you know our our website, and then we'll we'll post on on social media's um, you know links when the store's open. So that'll Usually I'm, I'm making that uh, available in the beginning of the week on Monday so that, you know, orders are in by Thursday and, and people can pick up on Friday. Or, again, just walk in, you know, next Friday, noon to 5, we'll, we'll be there. And those, and, uh, you know, yeah. If there's any weather concerns, we'd make a shift in the winter, you know, yeah. but thus far that's not been an issue. That, but that, and that's for non-CA members. That's for the general Correct. public. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's for anybody. So we're not yeah. we're not doing the, a winter CSA option. So we're just just here with whatever we've harvest, whatever we've got available to harvest each week. So last week that was a mix of you know arugula, lettuces, um, carrots, and radishes, um, and then we have our. Um, you know, preserved products, which are all sort of tomato products. We have marinara sauce and crushed tomatoes and Bloody Mary mix and salsa. Um, and we still have some of our honey left as well. So those jars are all available in the, in the store. Beautiful. And uh, Laura was mentioning to me uh, the other day that uh, she uh, was a CSA member at different points, but there, it was just too much food for yeah. <laughs> a, a single person. Right. So... It, is there an option for like I don't know what a single person membership or something like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that is the thing that we hear most from from folks is that really this is too much food. I think people, you know, no one likes to waste something. No one wants to you know buy something, bring it home, and then you know throw it out or put it in the compost. Uh, so I fully understand that. We've tried to set our system up so that, you know, for people who are picking up at the farm, um, you're, you're, you're bagging your own thing. So we say, you know, you can take up to, you know, three or four heads of lettuce or, you know, however many cucumbers or squash, but you don't have to take it all, you know, take what fits. So, um, we try to work with, um, you know, work with the situation so that people can choose what they want, um, you know, from our harvest. So we sort of set up market style for that purpose. But the, the other way we've, the other thing we've offered is a, a a 10-week option. So we don't do a smaller size for people, and there are plenty of farms who do who offer, you know, a small, medium, or large CSA mm. offering. What we've done is is offered a, a 10-week option. So it allows people to come any 10 weeks during our 20-week season. So we start in mid-June and end in late October. Um, you know, the, our produce is going to last a long time. So, uh, you know, it's freshly harvested. It's, it, you know, if you store it right, it, things can last for weeks. So that hopefully that one week of harvest can last you, you know, till your next pickup, which if you do every other week, um, you know, that 
that, that might be a good fit. But mm-hmm. it also allows for people to go away. You know, a lot of people, if they can get away for the summer, will be gone for a couple weeks here and there. And some people don't like, you know, again, it, they paid for a 20-week CSA. They don't want to miss those two or three weeks that they're gone. You know, we always say, of, of course, you should, you know, pass it off to your neighbor or have them pick up for you. But doing this 10-week flexible options means you can come for any 10 weeks. So if that's 10 weeks in a row in the beginning of the season or the 10 last weeks or you're there, you know, all of June, but you're gone for July and you miss four weeks, that's fine. You just let us know what your schedule is and um, we make it work for you. Um, so, so I think that's one of the nice options for someone who's, you know, single or, you know, a couple and, and want to eat vegetables but not quite as much as we offer. Um, you know, choose the weeks when you come. Uh, it'll last you a few weeks. Um, you know, our produce lasts a long yeah. time. And, and then, um, you know, if you're away, you miss a few weeks, no big deal because uh, you, you can come a few weeks in a row. Um, yeah. So I think that that's how we, that's how we've set it up to sort of manage the the issue that comes up for everyone is that you know we don't want to waste it. It's just a little bit too much. Indeed. Well, I want to mention that you're listening to the Organic Farm Stand. We're on our second show in January. It's hard to believe we're blasting through the winter without encountering any severe winter weather so far. Uh, I'm not sure if I should cross my fingers to ward it off or to bring it on you know it's almost it's almost a little spooky that we're uh this far into the winter without any real cold weather uh anyway we're speaking with steve massaro who's the manager of massaro farm a csa in woodbridge connecticut chris ferrio is here as well as laura maudlin laura what uh what kind of You've been beating the bushes uh, around the state looking for uh, interesting tidbits. So what do you have for us today? Okay, well, I was speaking with um, Louise Washer, who's on the board of the Pollinator Pathway, and she was telling me that they're going to be, the Pollinator Pathway is going to be represented in Hartford on January 24th, so that's next week. Um, to present two bills to for um, regarding banning pesticides and one of them is to ban neonic the um, coated seeds um, for non-agricultural use and the other one is to build upon the ban currently in place that pesticides aren't allowed in K through 8 playgrounds and playing fields she wants to they want to expand it to state land um, and you know, just to, to, to encourage healthy green space. So she'll be there next week, and I will check in with her and see how it goes. So, yeah, and you mentioned neonic, and I think that's neonicotinoid um, pesticide. Is that, how does that work? They're actually, it's actually embedded into the seeds at this point? Well, yeah, and some of them are part of the way they've been um engineered to be in the seeds and that's not necessarily a healthy way to do it indeed <laughs> steve any any uh, thought on that like do you have any uh, uh anything you could contribute on that on that point about the the, the way uh the uh, pesticides are used uh in the wrong way yeah absolutely i mean i think you know, and this is something that um, Connecticut NOFA has been, you know, working on as well over the years. And so really, you know, and also, you know, Pollinator Pathways are a, uh, a partner and we have a lot in common on the work we want to do there. Um, you know, neonicotinoids are, you know, insecticides. They're, they're just 
toxic to bees and pollinators are a major issue. And, you know, seeds are coated with, um, you know, there are seeds that get commonly used that are sort of coated with this, this, this pesticide in there. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the, these practices get ingrained in, um, in, in, you know, the habits and the uses of, of people and, and, and um, you know, it's going to take action and pol- policy and legislative action to to make those changes. Uh, to say, you know, this is not great for our environment. It's it's a problem, and um, you know, so I'm glad to hear that uh, this is being brought to, um, to the legislative session because it it it, it uh, it's been worked on for a long time, and I think we're gaining momentum throughout the country. Um, and, and so hopefully, we'll have some uh, reduction in their use. Uh, you know, uh, in the very near term. Uh, Laura, what um, what what is the, the can you flesh out that that idea about the, the, the legislation that she's that they're, they're pushing? Is it to when you said state land? What what are you referring to there? Is that public uh, public land? Um, they she is um, there. She's hoping that DEP might get involved uh, and um, to to ban these pesticides on state land because now they're they're obviously they're used on state land and um so that would be tremendous because it would it would give us more green spaces that are that are natural yeah i'm, I'm trying to zero in on what exactly we mean by public spaces so where where does the state actually use this kind of pesticide do we know specifically Anybody? <laughs> well, I would say, uh, um, you know, the Department of Transportation is one where, you know, you think about our highways and our, our, our roads and our roadsides. And, yep. and yeah. you know, there's many really great places where we can create habitat. You know, we've got these, you know, the Merritt Parkway, I think, is, just, is, is, is a beautiful space. And there's, there's green space there. And we could be encouraging, uh, you know, and creating habitat for, for uh, pollinators. Uh, and instead, so, you know, if, if we're employing pesticides in those areas, we might be, you know, destroying habitat. And we need, you know, the, this sort of pathway idea is for, you know, pollinators and insects and, and wildlife of all sorts to be able to migrate as they need to from, from you know, throughout these uh, watershed areas or these, you know, greenways. And, and um, so the stewardship of that goes beyond, you know, the individual level and the individual landowner. The the state, you know, uh, and municipalities take care of a lot of land. So it might be, you know, public parks and it might be, you know, roadsides and, and um, state routes and such. So I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know the details of this legislation, what they're asking, but I think that those are some of the public lands to think about. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is the, the, these, these roads and roadways and, and public parks and, and such. Why is that happening? Um, okay. We hope. What's that again? No. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that little blast of technology going awry. Uh, yeah, and I've been um, wondering. <laughs> I have this uh, thing that I've been considering trying to push at the municipal level, which would be a ban on. Uh, Chemicals in in the treatment of private lawns on private property. I know that's a big get. That's a big one to ask for. Uh, and uh, but um, that would be uh, something that I think is worth working on at the local level. In other words, an, an ordinance in a town that says 
you can no longer use toxic chemicals on your lawn because when it rains, they go right down your road to, you know, the, the drain. And oftentimes the drain goes right out to the, uh, to the ocean or the, or the sound in my case. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's just like a constant source of pollution going into the, uh, to the waterways, rivers, sound, whatever. And I think, uh, as uh, Laura talked about last show, once the, a lot of times those chemicals get leached into, um, get leached right into the uh, drinking water supplies because, uh, the, you know, the water connects, uh, you know, to other water sources underground. So people's wells could be affected. So that's that's something that I I don't know how to get to it. <laughs> it's it's a real tough one. I mean, we we can't even pass in in uh, my town, Brantford. Like the legislature, the uh, RTM is so divided between uh, Republicans and Democrats that it's in my town is dominated by Republicans, and they're they're like like a sort of a monolithic block of anything that has anything to do with people, people, uh, you know, adjusting to this new re reality of climate change. Uh, how are we doing, Chris? Still, still waiting. Okay. So we're hoping to get Lindley Dixon on the phone. And, uh, so far we are not succeeding, but we will Lindley, keep, keep uh, trying. Well, uh -huh. While we're working on it, Richard, I think, you know, there's, there's hope for, for making those changes. I'd like to think that uh, the environmental issues and the water health and soil health are things that can, you know, uh, cross political boundaries. And I think about a lot of oceanside towns and lakeside towns, you know, have been successful in, in banning those, those lawn pesticides and lawn fertilizers and such, because, you know, the, the water is so central to issues, you know, to the, to the, whether it's a, a town, you know, that's on a lake or on an ocean, we really can't have any uh, pollution into the to waterways. But, you know, it's not only those 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 towns that it's that are impacted by it, but I think those towns have realized it and, and made, you know, the municipal bans. So if you live within a thousand feet of a waterfront or something, it, it's not uncommon to see those bans. So I think there are places to, to look to. Uh, and then, so, you know, like any grassroots movement, it's about uh, gaining support, you know, amongst your neighbors and friends. And, uh, you know, we always like to think that these environmental issues are ones that can bring people together uh, because there's so much about our, you know, personal health and our community health. Um, so I think there are, you know, there could be hope. That's great. That's great to hear. And if you have any towns in mind that have done that, they could uh, serve as a model to the rest of us who are trying to work in our own little towns and sometimes bigger towns. Mm -hmm. So, um, if, yeah, let's keep that uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the agenda for a discussion coming up. I know we've had uh, uh, Mike uh, Nadeau, Nadeau <laughs> which it turns out is the correct pronunciation of his name. Everybody calls him Mike Nadeau, uh, but he's, uh, his, hey, name, his name is, uh, whoops. All right, um, uh, hold on, hold on one second. Trying to get a guess, but we can put you on the time being. Okay. So anyway, um, yeah, we're getting a phone call, and we are going to. And actually, this isn't this isn't our guest. This is a caller. Yeah, I understand. Okay. Right. Um, so. Second. Uh, okay, we got it. Okay. All right. Is, is Jeff on? Yes. Okay, Jeff. Hello. Hey, uh, how's it going? Our friend from Easton. How are you doing? So you know, interestingly, over the past. I don't know, some period, I've, I've asked people, you know, 
what comes to mind when I say Silent Spring? And I realize that it appears that most people have come either never knew or completely forgot about that all-too-important book written by Rachel Carson. And so the connection between the poisoning of your environment and the disaster that it leads to appears to be, you know, completely forgotten. And so one of the things I've been doing is just trying to educate people to realize that there was that connection and so that people know that that's what happens when you poison your environment. You kill everything and the whole food web starts to collapse. You certainly hear in each of the 24 years I've been here, uh, it's truly stunning to see how nature has worked to right itself where there were deer and coyotes, but now there's lots of coyotes, bobcats, bears have shown up. The mountain lion has roamed around and nature is trying to put itself back in balance since we stopped trying to kill everything. But people need to know how important that is that we don't poison anything because it breaks everything. I watch my neighbor's yard. The birds rarely land in the grass there because they, they spray stuff on it and it's dead. Where my lawn, there's always flickers and robins and blue jays pecking away because there's something to eat. Well said, Jeff. Yeah. And uh, right, and we last uh, couple of shows ago, we had uh, one show ago, I should say, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Laura talked about uh, the the Mill interesting River. development in Easton uh, about the what the Mill, the Mill River on the, Sar- the South, South Park, Park Avenue yeah. property, which I, I think I know who this is. I recognize your voice, Jeff. And he was. Let me actually set that record to be really clear for people who don't know what. Actually, I were talking about be with issues. We fought for 50 years over that property. And two years ago, I had a, a little hemp growing business there in order to try and, you know, keep that property from being developed. And then uh, in April, I tried to make a motion to put a conservation easement on that property. And the town said, no, no, you need a petition, which people went off and got. But we tried repeatedly to petition the town, but now we had them so they couldn't really tell us we couldn't do A and or B. We had, as the legislative body, the citizens are in this town because we're a town-leading form of government. So we finally pushed their hand, and it became convoluted. But we did get it done, which is really key because what's most important here in this town is the water supply. Nothing is more important in this town than the water supply that uh, brings water to the 600,000 people in the region. And if you screw up the water supply, your property value can go to zero because no potable water means no tidal transfer. So we thank Laura for bringing that up. It's really important. Yeah, and so and that was uh, that property apparently is contiguous to or leads to the Mill River. Is that right? It's it's the property has got the Mill River as sort of a crescent that wraps around it, mm-hmm. and it's below the dam, so it's not in the watershed of the town, which is why it was an easier place for people to try to propose development. Once the development, um, if you break zoning in this town. There will be no holds uh, against any development, and the town will look like Bethel in just a few short years because the pressures to develop here, uh, because profits um, are just this endless 
pitched battle we have here, but your water supply is so key, but, you know, it's everything about money now. And it doesn't seem to matter that that, that water supply is so important. And, you know, it's, so the zoning here is one acre and three acres. And if they break it, you, since you can't spot zone, uh, everything will be open to development. And we're forced by the state to create a, an affordable housing plan. And unfortunately, there's no recognition in that plan to prevent development from exploding. And the other things that are critically important to that is that there's no place in town to discharge from a sewage treatment plant into. There's no water body that's suitable. And so if you do all this development, you could end up like Brookfield, where the development got ahead of the ability to manage the sewage, and now they're, they're trapped. And here I ask people, what's, what limits the development? And there isn't anything. And if you're forced to build affordable housing, and then it sunsets, then you're forced to keep building more and more development in a place where this is your watershed, what stops the development from just turning this town to a city right up to the edge of the water? And, and it's just, it's literally insane. Your water supply should be primacy and there should be nothing else that, um, that supersedes that. The development should be where the transit system is, but the transit system, and I said this to our state leaders, the transit system needs to move because the climate scientists are telling us the seas are going to rise and they're not going to be able to get to the train lines. And if they're right by 2050, that will happen. And so where are you moving the train line to? Of course, we have the state representatives. They just give you that blank stare because they have no plan and no understanding what's actually going to happen. <laughs> um, Jeff, hi. Um, so hi you were talking about the water supply there, and uh, I know very well. How many reservoirs are there that that are sending water to people all over the state well there's three reservoirs in town but they're also there's also a connection to the Saugatuck and they move water about for a while there was a snaking black uh, pipe that ran next to Merritt Parkway which they buried somewhere because now they're allowed to ship more than 12 million gallons of water a day to Greenwich so obviously there's great Mm. value in the water the water company used to have reservoir police. They don't. Now the town supposedly is supposed to manage all this. But you, know, you can see how quickly it devolves. The water company doesn't seem to think it's all that important when people propose development here. But they really should because it's their asset. If they really cared about managing that asset, they would say, no, no, we don't want any development. We don't have to build a, you know, a hugely expensive water treatment facility. And the issue with the sewage treatment in the town is there's no place to, to send it to because you'd have to get underneath the highway and past the Mill River. It gets really complicated. It would be colossally expensive. It would drive the tax bill in town through the roof. Um, and the only people who would win would be the developers because they'd be forced to, they, they would be allowed to do all this development with no concept of having to pay for the, the sewage treatment facility that you'd eventually need if you just build and build and build here. Plus, they keep reminding people that with the West, Although it had massive rain, um, your food supply should be much more local. We have farmland, but it'd be really foolish to develop all that farmland and then say, gee, where does the food come from? Mm. Jeff, what is the solution, do you think, to having, meeting the the affordable uh, housing mandate without 
uh, totally uh, degrading the environment in a, in a small town like Easton. Start telling the truth. And the truth is that while everyone keeps saying affordable housing, affordable housing, I made it very clear that your affordable housing in Easton can't be affordable because suddenly you need a car because there are minimal services, there's no transit, and there are few jobs here. Although with the ability to work from home, that changes things somewhat. But the reality is that you can't allow billionaires to accumulate billions and billions of dollars while, while the federal minimum wage is at $7.25. Uh, your wages need to be raised in order to meet the need to actually have wages equal what it costs to live. But instead, we have huge profits for corporations and lower and lower and lower taxes since Reagan, and you've got this giant imbalance now. So people have to stop using this false notion of, quote, affordable housing when the housing isn't affordable. And it creates a huge mess because suddenly the town would be required to have somebody who knows in people's finances in order to decide whether or not you're eligible today or not. And then does the town throw you out when suddenly you got a better job and now you're making more <laughs> weight than is allowed? And then I have to pay taxes to pay for that person to do all of this work. And and you just see how this thing just creates more and more um, of an absurdity because you just add more and more things to a situation where the reality is pay people a living wage. That fixes the unaffordability issue. Um, and, you know, there's some legislation to stop billionaires from owning massive amounts of houses. In the 2008 crash, the billionaires bought all the housing and now they're renting it back to people for more than they were paying in, in mortgage charges. And the billionaires are making billions more dollars, and the rest of us are somehow supposed to keep up with the complete imbalance that's been created by people wrenching the system sideways. Jeff, uh, <laughs> this is quite a uh, quite, <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's complicated. But it's, but quite it's really a blast. Let's give you a chance to take take a breath and see if anybody has any thoughts on anything Jeff has said. Sure, um, it, Jeff. Um, and listen, I know what you're saying. You know, I live in the area. I live in Stratford. Um, those water supplies give me drinking water. Um, so it'd, it'd be a shame if something happened to them. And also, um, right now, as far as I'm aware, um, Easton doesn't even have apartment buildings. Is that correct? Correct. Easton was, Easton was correctly zoned years ago. Unfortunately, we did it and we maintained it to keep the development out of the watershed where it doesn't belong. Remember, New York State has 200,000 acres of land around their reservoir system. Um, Easton has, has thousands, but there's development all around it, and development only begets more development and more development, and more development means more traffic, more trash, um, and you know potentially failed septic systems, which leak into the reservoir system. In fact, occasionally... Uh, People from the water company, usually uh, student age, have toured my property um, looking to see if septics have failed somewhere. It's surprising to me in today's world that you'd send somebody out to check to make sure that a septic system hasn't failed, but with no methane meter or any other technology to measure anything. And, of course, given that these properties often preceded uh, more detailed mapping, et cetera. We don't even know exactly where the septic systems are in some of these properties. You know where the tanks are because they have to get pumped. But the leaching fields, it can be questionable. And then people drive over the machinery and things start to go wrong, and they fail, and then they're very expensive to fix. And it's 
it's very challenging. Well, that is, it is a definitely a challenging issue, the issue of affordable housing. It's being battled out in, in my town in Brantford. And uh, we, I mean, we do have a, a, an affordable housing complex, which needs to be renovated. And I think that process is happening now. But it was a pitched battle. Uh, the people living anywhere near that uh, development said, screamed bloody murder because they didn't want more traffic and all that stuff you're mentioning. Well, Brantford is a more, slightly more urbanized area and more developed certainly than Easton. But the question, I think it is an important question. Maybe Steve can chime in here about, you know, Steve lives in Woodbridge, which is a town that uh, is, you know, pretty rural. But I'm sure the issue of development is an issue there. So, Steve, any thoughts on this? Sure. Yeah. And I should say, um, you know, this is an issue in agriculture at large. I mean, certainly in, in the town of Woodbridge, it's an issue and it's being discussed um, you know, about how and, and where to create uh, affordable housing. But I would say just, you know, thinking about us as, you know, being on the organic farm stand here, this is this is an issue for, for farms and farmers and farm workers, you know, across the country is, um, you know, the, the living wage, uh, as Jeff mentioned. And that's something that we've looked at at Massaro is making trying to make sure that we're paying a living wage. And uh, that, that has gone up uh, quite significantly in the last 10 years and, and, and specifically in the last three years um, with inflation. So we look at, right, right now, we use the, uh, the living wage calculator that MIT puts out. So for those who want to check it out, livingwage.mit.edu, I think. Um, you know, and, it, and it tries to give you your, your count and, and what the typical expenses would be. And so minimum wage in the state, we're at, we're at you know, uh, I think we've just moved to $15 an hour, but a living wage for, for an adult with no children uh, is, is over $18 an hour right now in, in New Haven. So, and you know, we're fortunate here at Massaro being in, in Woodbridge, which, you know, is sort of a rural suburb. I mean, the, the fact is we're just 10 to 15 minutes away from New Haven. So a lot of the folks who, who work at Massaro, you know, live in, in New Haven area where you, you have more housing available. But the reality is most people who work here wouldn't be able to afford to live in Woodbridge. It's just there, the, you know, the, the housing and zoning is such a, that, that, you know, if you're making 15 16 to, to $20 an hour, there, there's not affordable housing for, for people doing that kind of work. And that work exists, you know, in Woodbridge and all the other small towns across the state. You know, there's going to be farm work and there's going to be food service work. And, you know, people need a place to live. Uh, you know, we need to pay that living wage, but then there needs to be housing to match it. So uh, there's not really housing to match, you know, the, the wages that are 15 to $20 an hour uh, in many towns throughout Connecticut. Uh, you know, but like I said, we're, we're fortunate in Massaro, at least that we have, uh, you know, we're adjacent to a city where there is a larger housing stock where people might live and, you know, have a short drive to us. But it's certainly a big challenge for lots of farms in Connecticut and throughout New England and throughout the country where where do you get your labor force if you don't have housing on your farm? Or does your farm have to build housing, uh, you know, to house people and then keep up those standards, and make sure it's quality housing for people to live in? You know, our, our food system right now is based a lot on migrant labor and those those you know those laborers don't have uh you know the sort of protections that lots of us in the labor force do have uh so and this is you know we've talked a long ago about the food justice certification which is sort of an add-on to to organic and i i know we were meant to have lindley on you know but it's, it's a sort of a separate issue you know that that gets 
pushed aside in the food system. Uh, you know, because when we go to the grocery store and we're buying stuff, you know, the true cost is not is not noted in this. Is that the reality is that these prices are low because people aren't paid well and aren't aren't given the protections uh, that they need from their employers. So our, our food system is a lot based on you know the exploitation of land and labor. Uh, and that's, you know, the organic movement was about, you know, sort of ch- changing that and bringing it back to a place where people are paid well, you know, are cared for. So it's not just the agricultural practice. It's also the employment and labor practices. Uh, so this is a major issue, and it does tie into, you know, zoning and affordable housing in lots of towns, and, and it can't constantly be pushed off to another town in another place. So, you know, it's something that collectively we all need to deal with. So, uh, you know, I don't know the details in Easton and, and all the details of each town in, in Connecticut, uh, but it's, it's collectively a, a major issue in Connecticut, in New England, and throughout the country. We did some inquiry into... Um into whether or not some of the farm laborers would want to live on the farms if we made some small housing for them. And people said, no, they really want to live amongst their community, not out here, which is interesting. And the other thing that's most important that I never hear anybody talk about is that in 1950, the world's population was only two and a half billion. So in the just over 70 years since then, we've more than... Added more than five and a half billion people. So we've more than tripled the population. And that's why we're having this problem. But you never hear anyone express that. So there's giant growth in the number of people, but the housing hasn't really kept up. But there are a lot of people with multiple houses, and those houses are vacant all the time. And they're just creating a giant rent. And you see that in Manhattan where there's all these apartments owned by people from other places. They're never there. Yeah. yeah, in Manhattan because it's too expensive. Yeah, it's the consolidation of wealth, you know, amassing by uh, very, very small numbers of people. As Bernie Sanders pointed out just the other day, I think he said three people, three of the biggest uh, billionaires in this country own uh, as, as much wealth as the bottom half of, of our population right here in the United States. Uh, Laura, what were your thoughts? Well, I just wanted to mention that one thing when I was um, involved in the conservation in Easton is that these people who are coming in with proposals and for affordable housing is that these developers know how to work the system. And for instance, if they can't sell them enough and affordable, they can go back to the state and petition to be able to sell them at any price. And also when there's affordable housing for seniors, they they try to appeal to towns saying, okay, well, there won't be children in the schools and that helps in the budget. And then again, if they can't sell them all, they'll, they'll just open it up. And they also only, I I recall, needed to put a certain amount as affordable for 20 years. Okay, folks, um, we are going to have to end this fantastic conversation. Very, very interesting and should to be continued. You've been listening to The Organic Farm Stand. Thanks to Steve Munno, Chris Ferrio, Laura Modlin, and Jeff Beck from Easton, who has really given, given us a lot of great stuff today. And uh, we will be back in uh, on the first Thursday I of... Yeah, I think it's the second. The second. Oh, February 2nd? It's Fe- Groundhog Day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we have some interesting things coming up, uh, which we'll tell you all about. Take care, everybody.
This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. The California snowpack is the largest we've seen at this time of year in over two decades, as multiple atmospheric rivers dumped several feet of additional snow in parts of the Sierra by this past week. In the wake of all this fresh snow, experts are expressing increasing optimism that the drought conditions, which have gripped the Golden State for three years, could meaningfully ease by the end of the snowy season. But despite this year's huge numbers, there's still reason for caution. Of the 10 years in the last two decades where the state registered above average snowpack on January 11th, only four ended the season above average. A study by MIT researchers in Science Advances confirms that the planet harbors a stabilizing feedback mechanism that acts over hundreds of thousands of years to pull the climate back from the brink, keeping global temperatures within a steady, habitable